The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. All right, great. Good morning. Uh, my name is Massimo. I'm uh, one of the elders here in Gospel City Church. And uh, first, I would like to again extend a special welcome to all of you here who are new with us. Uh, we would love to get to know you better and hope that maybe after the worship service, you can uh, stay back and go to lunch with one of us. Uh, or maybe even join in the crib group. Um, that's a great way, an excellent way uh, to get to know the church better. Uh, and we meet uh, throughout the week in various places. Um, as a church, we have been going through the book of Ephesians um, through a series that we called In Christ, Called, United, Empowered. And we're now in chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 together today. Uh, if you need some Bibles, uh, Andy is holding up uh, Bibles right there. Uh, we would love to pass one to you to help you uh, follow along with the text. Uh, and if this is your only Bible, uh, please keep it. We will give it to you as a gift uh, from our church as well. Uh, today's uh, title of the sermon, uh, I titled it, Called to Unity for Maturity. And um, as you're about to read, unity and maturity are really interlinked in this passage. Uh, in, a, in a module that uh, we teach uh, on conflict management uh, to church planters and church leaders, um, I often make one statement. Uh, conflict happens when difference is met with immaturity. Uh, because we know that difference is not the reason for conflict. Uh, in glory, uh, we will be Different people, uh, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, different types of people uh, coming together, um, worshipping one Lord in unity without conflict. So what brings about conflict? Well, it's not difference, but meeting difference with immaturity. And today's passage, Paul links unity with maturity, and we'll look through that through six points. Uh, the call to unity, the posture of unity, the basis for unity, the picture of unity, the goal of unity, and the power for unity. But let's begin by reading the text and praying. Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and we are reading out of the ESV. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us this morning to look at your truth? Would you help us understand it and live it? In Jesus' name, amen. So, point one, the call for unity. It says here in verse one, um, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul, in the first verse here, is urging people to walk in a manner worthy to the calling that they have been called. So it begs right away the question, to what have they been called? And naturally, coming out of chapter 1 through 3, where there was such a heavy emphasis on doctrinal truth, Paul is urging the church to walk in a way that is worthy of that truth that he just explained in chapter 1 through 3. So he's now moving from explaining our position in Christ, chapter 1 to 3, to now talking about how we practice this on earth, chapter 4 through 6. So what is it that we learned in chapter 1 through 3? Well, we learned that we are called to be faithful, and if you remember the first sermon, we are called to be faithful by God to a place for a message. We then learned that we are called to be sons, that we have been predestined for adoption that we are then called to pray, to pray the Lord, to get to know the Lord more deeply, that we are called by grace and thereby able to walk in the good works that He has for us, that we are called to remember, gaze, and rejoice where we have a place in God's household. We are called to the Gentile mission to have a big gospel to reach all peoples. And we are called to God's fullness, called to the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of Christ. And now he's saying, walk worthy to that calling. Walk as worthy saints as the church of Christ. Now, walking alone is not sufficient. As mentioned before a couple of weeks ago, um, our beginning has been attained by God who saved us by grace. And our destiny has been secured for us by God, by grace. So the place that we are walking to has been secured as well, and be, which means we are sure to get there. We have assurance because it's based on Christ's merits, not our merits. So therefore, just walking from point A, the beginning of our faith journey, to the end of our faith journey is not sufficient. What he's saying here, and what he's urging us here to do, is to walk worthily, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received. And just by the way, he's not suggesting or recommending people to walk worthy. He's not saying, ah, excuse me, could you kindly try? Or please, uh, try, uh, try. Uh. No, he's urging people. He is pleading. He is desiring for his people to walk worthily. He's just coming out of a prayer, right? Uh, last week, he's coming out of a prayer where he said, I bow my knees that by the height, the depth, the breadth, the width, that you will know the fullness of Christ. And now I urge you to walk worthy of that calling that you have. 
So how we walk is vitally important to Paul. Which therefore means what we do in our lives is important, but how we do what we do is equally important. And here the call is, he's focusing on that, the how. Walk in a manner worthy of all the truths of chapter 1 to 3. Therefore, the end does not justify the means. The means by which we live matter greatly to God. So as an example, we as a church are called to make disciples of all nations. Paul urges us here to do that in a way worthy of Christ. So the way that we make disciples is very important. Not just making disciples, but how we make disciples in a way worthy to the call that we have received. And as we continue to read the rest of the passage today, uh, Paul urges us, urges everyone, to be united for maturity. He's starting with walk worthily, but then the rest of the passage he's really talking lots about being united for maturity. And we will see that specifically in our point two, uh, the posture of unity. So first the, the call to unity, and now the posture of unity. So in verses 2 and 3, he now describes the manner by which we are to walk. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Now Paul here lists a, a whole bunch of postures, means by which we maintain unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. All of the words that Paul chose here are relational words. Words about how you relate to one another in community. And he's firstly saying, be humble, have humility. Arrogance and pride are not the Lord's way. Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And spiritual poverty comes from a deep recognition that we are sinful, we are not perfect, we are not better than others. So in a way, in a, in a church community, recognizing that our opinions, our thoughts, our ways might not be the best or the only ways is crucial in maintaining unity. God has gifted his church with multiple people whose opinions, thoughts, and needs to be considered because they are valuable equally valuable than yours and mine. Uh, next is gentleness. So whatever we do as a church, we're not supposed to bulldoze our way. Uh, we're not to um, just charge in or charge through things. We're not to lord over people and be harsh. When dealing with one another, we have to be gentle, soft, calm, tender, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentle and lowly is Jesus' description of himself. We are to grow to be like him. Uh, the next word here is patience. He says, be patient. Um, in a world where everything is expected to be done quickly, um, the way of the church, the way of the Lord, God's way is the patient way. Which means we can't expect people to change right away. 
We have to give people time. And very often, isn't it that it's our pride that insists on our way that causes us to lose patience with people and therefore we end up dealing harshly with them. Now being gentle and lowly and patient isn't easy and that's why he continues to say, bear with one another in love. He calls us to bear with one another because reality is we are unbearable. If, 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 if bearing with one another would be so easy and natural, he wouldn't have to say it. He says, bear with one another in love. And often bearing with one another means giving one another the space and time to change, to act, to grow. And he ends verse 3 by saying, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I just want to highlight here that he's not saying, he's not saying, create unity, build unity, form unity, generate unity, or attain unity, but maintain unity. See, unity already exists. Unity has been given to us by God who saved us into one body. It's a gift of the Spirit, and we are called to maintain this unity. So all we can do right now is mess it up. So we are called not to mess it up. Clint Arnold in his uh, commentary writes, Unity and peace are two of the central achievements of Christ through the blood he shed on the cross. God has created one new man in Christ, thus making peace. Christ is our peace who made both groups one. God thus dwells in this new humanity by His Spirit and gives us access to the Father. Therefore, it means that so regardless of our racial differences, regardless of even our political differences, regardless of our ethnic differences, regardless of our age differences, regardless of our difference in preference, regardless of our difference in culture, we should be eager to maintain the unity that was given to us as a gift by God. So the posture of unity is one that is eager to maintain it in humility, patience, and gentleness. Why? Why are we supposed to be united? <laughs> what's the basis of our unity? What's, what's the reason he's calling us here to be united? And Paul will tell us right away here in point three, the basis of our unity, verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, in all. The basis for our unity is not a pragmatic reason, but a theological one. He didn't say, walk worthily in humility and gentleness, because when we are united, we can do great things. He didn't say that. When we are united, we can affect change better. He didn't say that. When we are united, we can impact a community much better. He didn't say that. Though all these things might be true and could potentially be really good, it is not the basis of our unity. The basis of our unity is that there is one body and one spirit, that all of us here are united because we have one hope, that belongs to our call. We all have the same hope, which is our assured resurrection to be in God's full presence 
because of Christ's work on the cross. We all put our faith in the same Lord, the one Lord who is Jesus Christ. One faith, one baptism, and without taking a deep dive in all this, especially when it comes to one baptism, let me just say that this, that every Christian denomination believes that baptism is the symbol of belonging to Christian community. We have one God and Father. And what he's saying here is the oneness of God, the oneness which the community of the Trinity share in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the fundamental reason and the basis for our unity. We are brought into that community through the work of Christ. Now, when I say brought into the community, not that we become God, not that we are becoming one with God, but we get to share in the presence of God and the fullness of God's love and be co-heirs of the kingdom of God. We have become God's people. So as we all share in that same faith and are saved by one Lord and are called to a relationship with the one and only true God, we unite together holding on to that absolute truth. See, we are all different people and we have this one absolute truth that there is one God and one Lord who saved us. And as we put our faith in that truth, we all come together to that truth. We all walk towards that truth and we are united because we hold on to that one truth. You see, if we would be united because of pragmatic reasons, then we could find anything that would unite us, like skin color like political affinity, like worship music preference, like clothing style. And we could unite around those things and we would have what I would call perceived unity. Whereby all we would have created would be conformity to preferences and conformity to comfort levels. It is only when we are drawn by an absolute truth of one God and one hope and one faith that we who are so very different when you look around can be united and celebrate our differences at the same time. It is God, the work of Christ, our hope and faith that is the basis of our unity. Nothing else will ever stand the test of time to unite different peoples around the world. And we know that one day in glory, all tribes, all peoples, all nations, speaking all languages, will worship together our one Lord. So the basis of our unity is not pragmatic, but theological. We unite not because we are the same or like the same things, but because we believe the same truth. Paul, now, after stating the basis for our unity, shows us a picture of unity, and he uses the imagery of a body. How we then, as one body, function how each one of us, though different, because we have different gifts given to us by God, function together in unison. Which brings us to the next point, point four, the picture of unity. And we're taking that out of verse 7 to 12 and verse 15c. That's the last part of verse 15 and verse 16. Let me read. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul now helps us build a mental image and talks about how we are all one body. He uses the imagery of body to explain how we function together as members, as a church in unity. And he begins by declaring that every one of us, every one of us here who is in Christ has been given gifts. And the distribution of the gifts has nothing to do with who you are or what you have done. We have all been equally given gifts by the same grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we have not been given the same gifts, and we'll talk about that shortly, but we all have received gifts in the same way, in accordance to the measure of Christ's gift. He then quotes Psalm 68, 18, which refers to God as the divine warrior who achieves a great victory over his enemies and ascends to the holy mountain. Paul, by quoting Psalm 68 here, is saying that Jesus is that divine warrior who then, rather than receiving gifts as homage to his victory, is giving gifts to his people. He talks about how Christ, who ascended, is also the one who descended. And there are some difficulties in this interpretation, uh, where some people claim that it means that he is the incarnate God who descended to the lower regions, which is the earth. Others claim that this means that he descended into hell, declaring victory that, uh, over the spiritual forces that were there, that he descended to the lower parts below the earth, yeah, yet others say that it means he was buried under the earth and rose again, so he was under in the earth. But rather than entering again into a 1,500-year debate, uh, the main point he's trying to make here is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection ascended him to the heavenly places, and he's now far above all the heavens, and he fills all things. And we know that because Christ ascended again to the heavenly places, he then sent the Holy Spirit who is in us and enables us and gifts us the gift of the Spirit, making us one body. And it's this very gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to maintain unity and grow in maturity. The key point again is that the victorious King, Christ, gifts, gifts to us, not according to who we are, but according to who He is and what He has done. And what he gives us is people. It says here people. And there seems to be two categories of people that he gifts to the church. The equipping category and the serving category. In, in verse 11, and he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers equip the saints, and the saints do the work of the ministry. Now the, work for the word for ministry here um, is a Greek word that's used where we get the word deacon from, 
Um, it means to be a servant, to serve. So just to clarify one thing, everybody serves. Um, some serve in equipping and some serve in doing the work of the ministry. Both are required to build up the church. Both are required. If you equip only without serving, the body won't be built up. If you serve only without equipping, the body won't be built up. Everybody using their gifts to which God has given them properly together will build up the body of Christ. And that's exactly what he's saying in verses 15 and 16. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So if you're here and whether God has gifted you to be an equipper or a server, or you have been, you have been gifted by the same power for the same purpose, together we all build up the church in love. This imagery of a body, the head of the body, is not the equippers. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, or the teachers are not the head of the body. Christ is the head of the body. It's not the elders who are the head. It is Christ. It is Jesus. But within the body, we have different functions, and some which are ordinarily held by the elder, pastor, overseer role of the church, who do the equipping for the ministry, and everybody else does the work of the ministry. Now, this does not mean that ministry is only what we do on Sunday worship gatherings. Um, it is the equipping of the saints for the ministry from Monday through Sunday. The ministry that we have been called as a gathered church and a ministry to which we have been called as a scattered church. Which means, of course, that uh, as an usher, as a worship leader, as the AV crew, as somebody who prepares the Lord's Supper, somebody who prays, who greets, or makes announcements, you're all important to build up the church. But also, how you live your life at work, at home, in your neighborhoods, as parents, is important to build up the church. What I'm trying to emphasize here is that the work of the ministry of the saint is not limited to just Sunday morning, but the entire week. And those who equip are called to equip the church to walk worthily seven days a week. This is the picture Paul uses to describe how the church works together in unity. A body. Then what? And when it functions properly, it builds itself up in love. But what's the purpose of all of this? Uh, what's the goal? What are we trying to achieve in the equipping and in the serving? And Paul again is about to give the answer in our fifth point, the goal of unity, verses 13 and 14. Until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the, man to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He's saying that the body comes together to equip each other until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Notice here that in verse 13, unity of faith and maturity are lumped 
together. He doesn't separate them. They are one thing. They belong together. And right away, what jumps out from this statement is that Christian maturity cannot be achieved in isolation. There is no mature Christian that is not plucked into a local church community. Why? Because dealing with brothers and sisters who are different than you, dealing with people who are difficult, helps us grow in humility, gentleness, patience, and that's how you grow in maturity. Learning from one another and with one another helps with perspective. Let's you learn from other people's experiences. Let's you have a glimpse on how God works in other people's lives. And lets you be not limited to merely your own experiences. That's how you grow in maturity. Which therefore means that that difficult brother or sister in church or that person who thinks so very different than you or does things in a completely different way than you or the, the person who's just so hard to talk to or awkward to get in conversation with, it's so difficult to ministry alongside with, that person is God's gift to you for your growth and maturity. If God wants you to be a mature Christian, and having to deal with people who are different than you is God's gift to you for your growth. That very person will teach you humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and he will test your eagerness to maintain unity. Alone, without Christian community, without the local church, you would be like a child tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine. You won't have brothers and sisters helping you affirm the truth that you believe in. You will hear some random post on social media, some strange doctrine, some odds, WhatsApp messages about blood moons, um, some new way of looking at a text, some eisegesis, and you won't have the steadfastness that you could have by confirming these things with brothers and sisters. You might be easily misled by other people who are false teachers, which are all instruments of our crafty and deceitful enemy. Reading, studying, and learning Scripture in community is God's intent it's his means to grow the saints in maturity. By yourself, nobody will be holding you accountable to your character. Nobody will be challenging your behavior. You won't have people point out sin in your life or encourage you in your gifts. You won't be able to serve one another. You see, one of the most encouraging things to me was what we did just at the beginning of our worship service, singing together hearing one another sing and, and worship our Lord and encouragement builds up. You won't be able to be built up through encouragement by yourself. We are called to unity for maturity. That's the goal. Okay. So if that's the goal, to grow in unity and for maturity, how do we get there? What's the work that we need to do? Where do we get the power to do this? What's the driving power? How do we grow together in community? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 15. That's our last point for the day. Point six. 
the power of unity. Verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Paul says the way we grow up in every way, the way we grow into maturity, every way who is him, how we become Christ-like, the way to grow to maturity manhood and the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ is by speaking truth in love to one another. <coughs> Being brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to speak truth in love to one another is the way we will grow in maturity that will make us steadfast and assured to the truth that we believe in, knowing real doctrine. It will make us discerning and resilient. Now some people will take this and believe that it says speaking truth is the most loving thing we can do. And that's just partial truth. At the beginning of the passage, we were talking and uh, making an argument that it's not just what we do is important, but how we do it. So speaking is what we do, but in love is how we do it. Speaking truth in gentleness and humility with patience, bearing with another, being eager to maintain unity, that's how we speak truth. Speaking truth in a loving way, because Bible bashing one another does not build up the church. It does not. Now, I've used this illustration before. Hopefully you can't remember. Um, uh, I watched this movie called Wonder, and it's about this boy called Augie, and uh, he has a disformed face, and he has to wear a helmet to go to school because he's embarrassed about his face, and uh, he ends up going to school, and kids start making uh, fun of him. And as he takes off his helmet, he, he there's a whole bunch of struggles in, in school, and uh, kids call him ugly, and when the teachers say, hey, you shouldn't call him ugly, the kids say, but I'm being honest. He's ugly. And one teacher then decides to do something called precepts, uh, like moral codes by which you can live, and he puts up this moral code. is like, if you have the choice to be kind or honest, choose kind. When I heard that, it felt good. A little tear came down my eye, I think. It was just an emotional part of the movie, and Hollywood almost had me. You see, as Christians, we don't have the liberty to choose between honest and kind. We have to choose both. We have to speak truth in love. And because there seems to be such a great tension between those two, it often seems like they're complete opposites. But God calls us to live in that tension, to constantly be thinking, how can I speak this truth in a loving and gentle way to this brother or to this sister? It would be a mistake also to think that the more, mature, the more mature we get, the less we will feel the tension. No, the tension will always be there. If you stop wrestling with how can I say this truth in a loving way, you're not being mature. Maturity means a willingness to continue to wrestle in this tension. You see, truth without love is self-righteousness. Because all you're trying to do then in this moment is to deliver tr truth 
in such a way that you're actually bringing down somebody else. It's not for that person's sake, it's for your own sake. Either you're trying to show how holy or knowledgeable you are, or you're trying to show how sinful the other person are, is. So it's pushing them down. It's not elevating, it's not building up anybody. Truth without love crushes people. Truth without love is harshness. But on the flip side, love without truth is fluff. <laughs> There's no solid ground upon which you can build anything. Uh, it's actually self-indulgent because all you're trying to do is you say some nice things to somebody so that they will like you. Uh, Paul in Galatians 4, speaking about Judaizers, Pharisee Christians who are coming down and trying to teach something else to the Galatians, and he's saying, they make much of you so that you make much of them. The reason they're saying nice things is for them. And often the reason when we focus too much on love without truth, it's selfish, it's self-absorbent, it's self-indulgent. Your relationship with that person is more important to you than that person's relationship with God. So it's about you. So both truth without love and love without truth are selfish. One is self-righteous, one is self-absorbed. Only speaking truth in love is selfless. And the only way that you're able to be completely selfless is that if you have the assurance that you are completely taken care of. That's why the strength for speaking truth and love comes from an utter secure place where you do not have to think about yourself anymore, but everything has been taken care of so that you can be completely for somebody else. You see, if you believe that your goodness, your merit, your good behavior, your acting in a caring and loving and honest way towards someone earns you brownie points towards your salvation, then that very act is not selfless. You're doing it for yourself. And again, you will probably easily drop into too much love or too much truth. You will miss out one of those things. You're still doing it for yourself. And therefore, the only place where you will find the strength to truly speak truth in love to one another is the cross of Christ. Because there, truth came down to perform the most loving act ever experienced in human history. Jesus, who is the truth, the way, the life, descended from heaven and gave his life for us so that we become God's people, his beloved children, his church, his body. The cross of Christ declares the truth that you are broken and sinful and you need someone to save you. But it also declares that God sent someone to save you, his only begotten son, to die for you so that you can be brought into full presence of God again. And because Christ died for you and secured your destiny with God, you can be completely for other people and you can live in that tension because it's no longer about you. It's about them. And you can speak truth in love, using your gifts that God has given you to build up the body to help one another grow in maturity, either as somebody who equips or somebody who serves by doing the work of the ministry and properly functioning members of the body, teaching people the truth of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, and the one hope that belongs to our call. Doing all of this 
in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. You're able to do that because Jesus humbled himself and dealt with you with gentleness and patience. So now you are able to do that for others. And brothers and sisters, this is how you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The call, walk worthily. The posture, gentle and lowly. The basis, one God, one faith, one hope that unites. The picture, a body that builds each other up in love. The goal, maturity through unity. The power, speaking truth in love. A power that comes from Christ crucified and resurrected. Christ, who is truth and who is love. Who is the victorious king. Who empowers you through his gifts. Church, let's be a church that walks worthily the call that we have received from Christ. Let's build each other up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Help us to grow in unity and maturity. Help us speak truth in love. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my